This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 557 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Jenny Hex wraps up Wonder Comics, Bendis says farewell to the Man of Steel, neurotic superheroes, the world ends at 9.15, your friendly alien doctor, we're stuck in a weird loop, Gus will save the day, Gary Seven's backstory, and DC takes a breather. This is How I Got My Wife to Read Comics for Sunday, January 3rd, 2021. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, or subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and maybe leave us a review somewhere. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, Check out tumblr.com slash blog slash sfppn or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. We've got four weeks to cover, so let's get started with two finales. Ginny Hex, special number one from DC Wonder Comics by Visaggio, Mel Kinoff, and Guerrero. This is most likely the final issue from the Wonder Comics imprint, created to give Brian Michael Bendis a place to do what he wished with the DCU. It's always been unclear if it's part of the main DCU or not. The characters introduced here have, for the most part, stayed within Bendis' DC titles. Naomi, for instance, will be part of Bendis' new Justice League post-future state. More on that later. Ginny Hex is a character with very little backstory apart from being a descendant of Jonah Hex until now. She's back at her family business, Hex Auto Repair, that's H-E-C-K apostrophe S, in Texas. So either Hex is a nickname or the family changed it officially. We learn her mother died of cancer last year and she's back to get the business back up on its feet. In walks Jack Duquette, who turns out to be her father having abandoned them before she was born. There's a whole bonding sequence, but you know something else is going on. Jenny shows Jack the contents of her trunk with the mystical galactic artifacts from great-great-great-grandpa Jonah, despite reservations from her friend Ladybird. Jack steals the trunk and finds what he's looking for, an orb that is the god's eye, which he deposits in his skull. A huge explosion occurs, and when everyone comes to, the town is back in the 1800s, and Three-Eyed Jack is in charge. The girls are attacked by a monstrous version of their friend Alex, who is enthralled to Ginny's mom. She's been brought back to life and is on Jack's side. We get Jack's origin, a man in the Old West who hired Jonah to find a huge pearl, the God's Eye, which goes off and gives him apparent immortality. He learns he has to absorb other life forces to stay healthy and moves into Lady Bird's body. She mentally fights him off while Ginny rips out the God's Eye. Jack dies, as does Ginny's mom. Ginny later calls in Superman, who takes charge of the artifact, and then the girls go off to find new adventures. I really hope Ginny survives Bendis' time at the DCU. Although this story very much reminded me of the Stargirl arc in the TV series with her dad. Oh, yeah. 
Superman number 28 by Bendis, Rice, Mickey, and Sinclair, and action number 1028 by Bendis, Romita Jr., Jansen, and Anderson. Brian Michael Bendis came to D.C. mostly to try his hand at the Man of Steel and, by extension, the Legion of Superheroes. These are his final Superman tales. The first issue wraps up his alien Sinmar storyline with a Lana Lang podcast as a framing device. Lois has given Lana access to her new book, The Truth About Superman. Lana then basically reads an excerpt to us while the alien battle goes on. We learn that, I assume metaphorically, Superman really gets his powers from the hopes, fears, and love of all humanity. Oh, and the United Planet Brigade arrives to mop things up. Supergirl and Crypto arrive to escort Superman back home. There's a coda involving a young guitar player on the roof of a building near Clark and Lois's apartment. They fly over and thank her for her music that it helps me get back home. Cut to a shot of her playing while the couple smooch, hovering in the air. The second issue closes out all the plot threads. For those who missed Matt Fraction's excellent Jimmy Olsen miniseries, it's explained how Jimmy is now the owner of the Daily Planet. This is also why the FBI suddenly dropped their investigation of the paper. Don't pick at that thread. Jimmy gives Perry complete creative control of the paper, then asks if he can have his own cubicle. Clark hears back from the Hall of Justice regarding Connor. He should live a regular lifespan despite being a clone, but his powers will at some point wear off. This could happen next week or decades from now. Connor's existence proves that the timeline has been rebooted at least once. The L family head back to Smallville, where Ma and Pa Kent greet Connor with open arms. They also remember taking care of him and will continue doing so. Supergirl quietly asks John about Brainiac 5. What's his deal? Of course, Kara and Brainy were an item in the Silver Age. She then leaves, as do Clark and John. Crypto and Connor will be buddies on the farm. John asks if he and his father can just spend a day just helping people, which they do feeding the poor, fixing a school bus tire, stopping Penguin along with Bruce and Damien. Oswald thought he could take over the Invisible Mafia. Getting some tacos, saving people from an inerrant balloon, repairing or tearing down a tree for some Boy Scouts. I thought he was catching the tree before it fell on the Boy Scouts. (laughs) It just wasn't very clear. They drop off tacos for Lois, then mop up some of the Mafia. John says it's time for him to return to the Legion. But if you have a time machine, shush, Uncle Jimmy, Lois gives him a peck on the cheek and he's gone. The couple return to the planet where Perry gives an inspirational speech on the truth. Then everybody gets an alert on their phones about a fight in Kondok and Clark is off. The final panel is Lois's messy desk with post-its listing Bendis' thanks to the fans and the other creatives. Bendis really understands Superman and his world, probably more than anyone since Jeff Johns worked on the title years ago. Penultimate, number two and number three from Ahoy Comics by Payer, Robinson, and Luffridge. We get a double dose of this neurotic take on the Silver Age. As a reminder, Penultimate is from the far future where mental abilities are treasured over physical ones. He's a throwback, so his family exile him to the current day. This gives him a lot of neuroses and anxiety. During a period when he was called back to the future to stop a threat requiring strength, after which they sent him back without even a thank you, Penultimate put his robot, Anti-Penultimate, in charge. 
The robot, hoping to do his best, manages to rehabilitate his sworn enemy and gets a promotion in his secret identity at the FBI. P-Man returns to find his life totally upended, although he can't realize it's all for the better. His confidence is shaken, so while he saves people, they aren't happy about it. He meets with his archenemy and asks what he said to turn him around. You didn't say anything. You listened. He also learns how he got the promotion at the office. He was empathetic with his co-workers. P-Man starts reading self-help books about positivity. If you put negative energy into the universe, it will come back at you stronger. When competing tasks come up, a party with co-workers and a factory explosion, he sends the robot to the party and tries to be positive as he saves the people at the factory. Pulling rubble off a man, he says, You can focus on pain or on what's good in life. You can train yourself to choose positivity. What, says the man? The moment goes viral with the headline, Penultimate to Victim, Walk It Off. Meanwhile, the robot, trying to fix things, feigned drunkenness at the party and quit his job. The robot decides his master is in no condition to operate as a hero and decides to take over the role until P-Man's reputation can be restored. A very sardonic comic, which we are enjoying a lot. Second Coming, Only Begotten Son, number one from Ahoy Comics by Russell, Pace, Kirk, and Troy. The second volume of Mark Russell's Superman Meets Jesus saga. We kick things off with Sunstar's origin story. It's incredibly familiar if you know almost anything about the Man of Steel. On the planet Zirconia, a landscape of crystals married to mid-century modern, scientist Voldor arrives home with the groceries and terrible knowledge. He tells wife Zoldana that the planet is about to explode, sometime around 9.15. The world can't end tonight, it just can't. Oh, and why not? Well, for one thing, we're having people over. She's making earth food called soup. Gordo tries to sell them on a timeshare while Vera shows off her latest tiara. Voldar finally cracks and screams at them about the fact that the world is going to end. Well, that's the kind of talk that scares off investors. Voldor throws them out. He's sad that he wasted so much time at work. In the end, everything is paid for with time. Cut to earlier in the day when Voldor and the director of sciences agree to keep the news secret to avoid useless panic. The director then decides to apologize to the world for not believing Voldor in time by blowing his brains out. Back to that night when Voldor tells his wife he's been putting money away to buy a spaceship. So we can escape the planet before it explodes? Well, no. You and me, we're screwed. But it is big enough to save Sunstar. Seriously? That was the biggest spaceship you could afford? I'm a scientist on a government salary. They decide to send the ship to the one with the soup as Zirconia explodes behind it. Cut to present day. Where Sunstar's wife is pregnant, Jesus has been staying in the spare room but needs to move out for the baby. Parents see kids as their chance for salvation, their opportunity to fix the world that broke them. I hope that's what they wanted for me, why they sent me away, but I couldn't say I never knew my parents. Resident Alien, Your Rides Here, number one through three from Dark Horse by Hogan and Park House. This is the sixth in a set of miniseries going back to 2011 from the same creative team. It's based on the concept of an alien from space being sympathetic rather than a menace. 
the main character crashes in the southwestern U.S. and has to hide in plain sight using mental abilities that hide his true form while waiting for a ride back. He learns about Earth and becomes a doctor in a small Washington village. He also enjoys mystery novels and considers himself an amateur sleuth. This comes in handy as the town seems to have a lot of weirdness. So it's a mix of My Favorite Martian, Twin Peaks, Northern Exposure, and Doc Martin. We came across this title in previews and learned it is soon to be a sci-fi series with Alan Tudyk in the main role. This volume is a satisfying read with a very gentle storyline for the most part. Dr. Harry Vanderspiegel gets word from a shaman that the people he's waiting for are close now, as is a possible danger. There's also a local marriage, a man is shot with a BB gun, his nurse is attacked by a guy in an outfit out of Johnny Quest, Harry hires an assistant, a mysterious man is tracking Harry, and a young girl disappears. Just a lot of things happening. Colonel Weird, Cosmogog number 3 from Dark Horse by Lemire and Crook. Our hero continues helplessly passing through his own life. We start with the anti-god battle just long enough for Weird to tell Black Hammer he needs to go to kick off the plan with Dragonfly that culminates in the original series. Then we see Colonel Weird fly into the Parazone only to fly above his sleeping wife ten years later. Cut to San Francisco where a bearded Weird befriends a homeless man. Back to the anti-god battle where he tells Abraham Slam to bring together the team. Back to San Francisco, where Weird is the leader of a small cult, where they all wear versions of his outfit. Slam busts in, saying the government wants to speak to him, just before Weird is whisked away to the alien planet where he saw the cave painting. Turns out, he made the painting himself. I think there's only one more issue to go with a lot to tie up. Here's another one from Lemire. Sweet Tooth, The Return, number two of six, from DC Black Label by Lemire and Villa Rubia. Gus sees Jeopard for a moment, and his life flashes before his eyes. Now he's on the run again from the authorities, only to run into another cave city met by a young girl. Meanwhile, Father gets update from his team about the missing boy. Back to Gus, who is told by the little girl Penny that her family are not followers, a.k.a. they don't buy into the religion. They are both snatched by the guards. An old man watches it happen, then calls in the others. I think think it's finally time. Back to Gus and Penny being put behind bars by Father. He is told to take his treatment, which turns out to be poison for the hybrid still living above. A group meets in a hidden chamber where the old man says, This is our liberation! Penny tells Gus he is there to save all of them, and when he tells her what's the point, she says, Just because the world is cruel doesn't mean you can't believe in something. A shadowy figure comes to the cell. It's an elephant hybrid. You definitely need to read the original series to know what's going on here. And even then... Star Trek Year 5, number 17 from IDW by Lansing, Kelly, and Woodward. We take a detour from the main story to get what may be the most complete backstory for the enigmatic Gary 7. A character created for a failed backdoor pilot on the original series in the episode Assignment Earth. Seven, originally played by Robert Lansing is a time agent for a mysterious organization that plucks life forms from their own worlds, then trains and develops them into perfect beings. He has a shape-shifting partner named Isis that goes between being a gorgeous woman and a cat. There's also Roberta Lincoln, played by Terry Garr, hired as a receptionist to keep up the pretense that Seven was just running a normal business. The idea of a being that moves through time with a partner and the inclusion of a weird pen that does whatever the plot needs it to do created a fan theory that Roddenberry was ripping off Doctor Who. 
The UK series was basically unknown in the U.S. at the time, plus the Doctor's sonic screwdriver came along after the Trek episode, which makes this very unlikely. In any case, we see Gary in what appears to be a normal suburban life with a family. It turns out to be a simulation to keep him ready for his assignment. Another agent of Aegis arrives, hands him the pen, and says that Gary 6 is dead. He is now Gary 7 of Earth. We see that the suburban neighborhood is one of many domed areas on barren asteroids. We also meet other agents, Kolik 5 of Vulcan, Azaram 19 of Quonos, an unnamed agent of Andor, all with some type of animal familiars. A data dump is downloaded to his mind, explaining what is going on. He's assigned Isis, the shape-shifting girl, and the career of Supervisor 194 begins. We see Seven throughout time, the driver for Archduke Ferdinand in 1914, an advisor to Jimi Hendrix in 1969, an aide to Genghis Khan in 1206, a tamperer of Vulcan sensors, so they notice Earth's first warp signature in 2063. We then reach his mission that results in the Trek episode, and he learns afterward that the crisis had already been resolved. It was just so he could meet Kirk. Isaacs explains his true mission to end Kirk's life. Aegis has realized that the Federation must be stopped to avoid endless wars and only allow the Tholians to live. They can be controlled by Aegis and ensure a stable galaxy. Kirk is the only thing that stands in the way of that goal. After an argument, Seven agrees to the mission. While fascinating, this makes no sense. If Aegis wanted Kirk and the Federation gone, why not just let the missile crisis of the 60s reach a logical conclusion, a war that ensures Kirk is never born and Earth never reaches the stars to leave the Federation? Back to the main story, next issue. We have some DC news. We're about to see a two-month break in the normal schedule as all regular titles will go on a hiatus to allow Future State to play through. Future State was scraped together from the remains of the canceled Generation 5, not a reboot. It will show various futures along a single timeline that may or may not be the actual future of the DCU. John Kent becomes Superman, Diana is replaced by a South American Amazon, Bruce is replaced by Tim Fox as Batman, there's a new version of the Justice League, Kara becomes Superwoman, and at one point we jump even further ahead in the Legion of Superheroes storyline. We're getting a lot of these books, so you'll be hearing a lot more about them in the next few episodes. Once this concludes, a refreshed version of the DCU, DC apparently hates the word reboot, will be introduced in March with Infinite Frontier, a special that will roll out the new line. I guess DC has decided to recycle old event names and a kind of Mad Libs, so get ready for Kingdom Crisis, War of the Trinity, and The Final Blackest Night. To be honest, I'm not excited about most of the new books. Bendis will create a new Justice League composed of Superman, Batman, The Flash, Hawkgirl, Aquaman, Hippolyta, replacing Diana for now, and Naomi from Bendis's Wonder Comics, and Black Adam. There's also a crime syndicate miniseries that sounds interesting, and a Superman red and blue mini based on the same concept as Batman Black and White, with all the anthology stories in red and blue. Speaking of anthologies, many of the books will grow in length as backup stories are added. This will result in most of the line now selling for $4.99. Ouch. Guess we made the right call to steer away from D.C. AnnouncerBot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. 
subscribe by your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out tumblr.com slash blog slash sfppn. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.